Good morning. It's great to have you in worship this morning. It's good to be together and, and sing songs of praise to our Savior, to our Lord Jesus Christ. We continue today in Genesis. So if you've got a Bible handy, I uh, want you to go ahead and open to uh, actually Genesis 12 is where we're going to start out and then we'll go to Genesis 13 and catch up to where we are in uh, chapter 15 in uh, just a moment here. So keep your your thumb there um, so that we can jump right back into Genesis there before uh, a couple minutes now. Let's go ahead and if you've got that Bible handy, just go ahead and hold it up as a declaration together, as a symbol of the authority of the Word of God in our lives Hold it up high and let's declare this together. This is the written Word of God. It is the story of His creation and purpose. It is my story. So this morning, I give myself wholeheartedly to hear from God and His Word that I might be in tune with His purposes. Lord God in heaven, we indeed ask that You would Give us hearts and minds that are in tune with your will for your, that are in tune with your purposes for our lives. We've just sung about how the song of redemption is our story, about how that's our song, and how we, we long to praise you, Lord. And we look forward to that day when that will be the case completely, so that we would be able to give our all. And as best we can do that today, we want to do that, Lord. And so we ask that you would lay us bare before the truth of your word. We ask that uh, today your spirit would move hearts and would shape us and form us after your likeness. Uh, we just, before we uh, dive into your word, we just ask that you would speak, Lord, into our hearts so that we would become more and more the people you've called us and created us to be today. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Today is Family Sunday, and on the last Sunday of every month, we have what we call Family Sunday. We like to, uh, to have kids uh, through fifth grades with us here uh, in worship, and then usually when uh, sermon time comes, they go off to KFC, Kids for Christ, which is the children's worship time. Uh, but today, uh, at the end of every month, the last Sunday, we keep them together for Family Sunday. And on Family Sunday, what we're going to try to do is continue to implement the children to be a part of our worship. Uh, so, for example, uh, children are part of handing out bulletins and, and lighting the candles to Day. And, and I want anybody who is willing through fifth grade to come on up. And, and, and I've, got, I've got something for you uh, that will make it worth your while if you come on up here. Uh, any, anybody in elementary school or below who's all the way through fifth grade, come on up and just sort of sit right here in front. I'll make it worth your while. Don't worry. I may even, may even give you two of these each if you come on up. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and just turn around so I can, so I can see you, because I'm going to ask you a couple questions here. All right. So you see this box. It has something in it, okay? Can you hear that? I'm not, I'm not making it up. There's something in here. There's something in this box. Do you want to know what it is? Yes. <laughs> Smart alecky. No. Uh, you, you do, of course, want to know what it is. And uh, do you have any guesses as to what it might be in this box? Because I haven't told you anything. 
a little cross. That's a good guess. You think we're going to be spiritual and give you something like that? Well, not really. Um, but that's a good guess. You would think that would be something that might be in this box. Any other guesses as to what this is? You already guessed. Sounds like what? It might be. Um, I'll tell you what it is in a few minutes, but you're going to have to wait for it, okay? I promise you that I will give this to you, but you're going to have to wait a little bit, okay? First, I want to ask you a question about somebody in Scripture who had to wait for a promise. Today, in Genesis, we're talking about Abraham. And, of course, Abraham was promised something by God. Uh, Does anybody know what he was promised by God? There might be a few different ways to answer this. What What was God's promise to Abraham that he had to wait for? I'm waiting. Um, Rhymes with fun starts with S. Let me me say that again. Uh, What he was waiting for rhymes with fun but starts with S. Yes, he was waiting for a son. (laughs) That's good. That's good. The gift that God wanted to give Abraham uh, was a son. But, but he had to wait for the promise. Have you ever had to wait for like a present or a gift or your birthday or Christmas? And you know when you're waiting, you're excited about it. And, 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 and because you're excited about it, that makes the waiting that much, well, better. So what I have in here is gluten-free and uh, only 25 calories, by the way. Um, but what I have in here is a gift I want to give you, and, and I can give you this, but, but, but it's only under one condition. Okay? You have to wait to open it until your mom and dad say it again. Okay? All right? Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead and grab one each. I knew it You did know it was candy, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. All right. I guess so. Thanks, guys. We've been looking at how God's covenant promise of of grace triggered by faith, uh, of a son who would lead to Christ, we've been looking at how that covenant promise works out in the life of Abram. And we see that covenant promise of God, that agreement between Abram and God in Genesis 12 for the first time for Abram. Genesis 12 is where we pick up because this is where God gives, in general terms, a sort of overview, big scale terms, what he's calling Abram to in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This is where it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you, this is where he begins to tell him the promise, I will make of you, God speaking to Abram, a great nation. And I will, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so Abram knows something good is coming. He knows something worth waiting for is on the way. Because through him, it says, others will be blessed. And so he knows he gets to be a part of something special. So in, in, in Genesis 13... This is where uh, God sort of expands a little bit on that general covenant, that general promise in 13 verses 14 through 18 there. I'm just going to read this. Follow along if you've got your, uh, your Bibles open. In 13, 14 to 18 it says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. I'm sorry, that's not the right place. 14 is not right. Uh... So we're going to skip that because I totally have the wrong place. I was reading chapter 14. You're right. Chapter 13 it is, verses 14 to 18. Here we go. This is where where God expands on the covenant. Thank you, Mark. The Lord said to Abram, verse 14, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you. So he had in more specific terms now, he had in more specific terms what this covenant was going to look like in practical ways. The land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And so it says, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. So, so we see the general call in Genesis 12 expanded here in Genesis 13, uh, 14 through 18. And that brings us up to Genesis 15 today, at the very beginning of 15, where the terms of the covenant, and it's the first time this word covenant is used, the terms between God and Abram become more specifically talked about here in Genesis 15. Here, who, who here likes to wait for something? Probably, probably nobody really, right? You know, I, I, I am, am not exactly Mr. Patient when it comes to waiting for something. And I bet a lot of you feel that, that same tension about gifts and, and presents. And, and I remember as a kid uh, for Christmas and my birthday, I mean, that's like I just couldn't wait for that to come. And, and when, the, when the gift finally comes, though, we realize that it wasn't really worth waiting for. At least when we become older, we see that, that all that excitement and that anticipation of a gift for Christmas or birthday, we, we, we get older and we see it, it wasn't really as great as we kind of thought it was going to be. You see, that, that's the opposite of how it works with the covenant of God and, and the gift that he has for us. And we see that, that Abram is waiting and waiting and waiting. And we'll see that it's worth the wait for him. It's worth it for him. But being in that valley of waiting for Abram, who will become Abraham here, was a long process that was somewhat difficult. And, and we'll see in the dialogue here of chapter 15 how it was difficult for him. 15 verse 1, it says, after these things. In other words, after the events of chapter 14, 
where, where Abram goes off to war and takes 318 of his trained men. When we talked last week about Abram and Lot having huge uh, uh, numbers of flocks and herds and tents, uh, we understand that it's even probably bigger than we've thought about because when he goes off to war in chapter 14, he's taken 318 trained men born in his household, it says. So, so Abram's got huge numbers of people in his household. And so that's when he goes to war in 14. After that, after these things, 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. There's something to, to, to note here when it says, after these things. If you've read 14, you may remember that the king of Sodom, after Abram uh, defeated the kings, the king of Sodom comes and he offers Abram uh, a gift, a monetary gift. And and Abram demonstrates from the get-go here in 15, and this is significant to note, it demonstrates from the get-go in chapter 15 that Abram was willing to wait on God's timing and for God to provide. That's significant for setting the stage here for how Abram waited on God. And yet, as we'll also see here, he didn't always wait patiently. He didn't always respond by waiting well. He had his doubts. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It might have been a dream. It might have been daydreaming. We don't really know. God is speaking to him in some way. It says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. God knows Abram has his doubts. And so, a- and so Abram hears God and he says, fear not. In other words, trust me in this process, Abram. God is reassuring Abram that the wait will be worth it. But of course, Abram, like we often do, he questions God's timing. Verse 2, but Abram said... But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Remember, we already know from Genesis 11.30 that that Sarah was barren. And we already know that, that Abram thinks that accomplishing God's mission of fruitfulness involves getting his wife pregnant somehow. Uh, so perhaps that was his motivation for lying so that uh, she would be a part of Pharaoh's court. We don't know for sure, but it says that she was childless. He knew it and she knew it. And so, and so he starts to, to find ways to make the covenant promise of an offspring happen. He starts to, to scheme for making that happen. So we know that, that, he, that uh, Sarah is childless, and so Abram is filled with these doubts. And, though he sa- and so he says in verse 2, What will you give me, for I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? We don't really know, by the way, who Eliezer was. might have been a servant picked up along the way. But the point is that Abram says, This guy's not even a part of my family lineage. He's just a part of my household. I picked him up along the way. And so he says, verse 3, Abram said, behold, that word behold in, in, in the Hebrew has a bit of an exasperation to it. It's like saying, uh, with, with a little bit of sarcasm, it's like saying, look, God, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. <laughs> and behold, to counter Abram's behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer shall not be your heir, 
your very own son shall be your heir. And so verse 5, God brings him outside. At this point, God is uh, sort of like, okay, Abram, it's time to make this practical. You've not, you've not heard me well enough yet. And so verse 5, he said to him, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He makes it sort of practical. He says, check it out, count the stars. <laughs> and, and, of course, God sort of says, how's that working? You're getting the stars counted, Abram? Is that, is that, does that make sense yet, Abram? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? This is bigger than your vision. And so, at this sort of moment of conflict for Abram, he concedes. Verse 6, he sort of gets it and he says, okay, Lord. Verse 6 tells us, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed, he trusted the words, the word of God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. If you're a note taker or a circler, verse 6 is a huge, huge verse. Not just in this passage, but for all of Scripture coming after this. In fact, who we are as, as New Testament believers hinges on the truth of verse 6. So we're going to camp out here on verse 6 for just a second because, because it explains a lot for us about what it means to be a believer. It's part of the, the center of the gospel, that if we do not get this right, other things will not be right. This key verse here in 15.6 is something that the New Testament writers later on will pick up on, and it becomes the basis for what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith. In other words, we are we're justified, we're set in right relationship with God by hearing by faith, by responding to God's call in faith. It's sort of been described as, as relying on someone else, not just as we do horizontally. You know, when we rely on somebody, we know that there are our conditions. We know that, that sinful people on whom we rely can fail us. This is total, complete, I'm in your hands, trust. It's been described as relying on somebody. Turn for a second here to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 2 to 6. Paul, later on here in Galatians, he picks up on this idea, this important concept of, of Abram believing the Lord and God counting it as righteous on his behalf. The background of Galatians, uh, in basic terms, is this. There are people who have come and infiltrated the church. And they have said, not only do you have to believe this to be a believer, but you also have to do this, and this has to be a part of that. So, so your faith was not enough 
to justify you before God. They were also telling the people, among other things, that you had to be circumcised in order to be a believer in Jesus, as if the old law still applied in that way. So that's sort of the background here for Galatians. Paul is making the argument that salvation comes by faith. And so he sets up this point here in, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 3, Galatians 3, 2. He sets up his point by asking a key question to the Galatians. He's sort of frustrated with him at this point because they're listening to these, uh, these infiltrators. We call them Judaizers because they're trying to Jewishize. They're trying to make the Christian faith plus the Jewish faith the requirements. So he's frustrated with them, and so he asks this question, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How is it that you received the Spirit of God in the first place? Was it by your goodness and works, or was it by your faith? And so he says, did you suffer, verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works or by hearing with faith? And then he picks up on verse 6 of chapter 15 here in 3.6. And he says, just as Abram, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, this is how it worked for Abraham even way back when in Genesis. His following of God was something that happened by faith. It wasn't his good works that gave him that righteous standing before God. It was Abraham's faith. And so that's why we are studying Abraham because he's a father of that kind of faith. He's the first example in Scripture of what it looks like to really be justified by faith. In other words, that faith that triggers God's grace to count us as righteous. If you don't get that right, you're not going to get anything else right. In fact, in fact, if we are people of that faith, we are called children of Abraham. In Galatians 3, Paul goes on to say that, that those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Verse 7 says, those of faith are sons of Abraham. Justified the same way that Abraham was. And I, and I love the way he talks about Abraham here in verse 9 of Galatians 3. It calls him the man of faith. He's, he's held up as this man who demonstrates for us what it means to be justified before God. How often, how often do we manipulate our lives and our relationships with others so that, so that our works feel like we are justified. So that, so that we can feel like we are justified by what we do. Paul's saying, that's a dead end. It never works. It never will work. It never has worked. And it didn't work that way for Abraham. He's speaking to Jews who hold up Abraham as the man of faith, as, as the paragon of what it means to follow God. And he's saying, even that guy was not justified by his good works. It's picked up on, again in Romans, by Paul. 
If you want to turn there and follow along for just a second, it's a similar kind of verbiage about it picking up on that verse 6 in chapter 15 of of Genesis. Uh, Romans 4, 1 through 12 is that whole section there. Uh, We probably won't go through all of it, but, uh, but it continues to make the point that faith in God's work on our behalf is what counts as righteousness. And that's what explains the covenant in just a second. Faith in God's work, in his work on our behalf, counts as righteousness. And so he says this in Romans uh, 4, verses 1 and following here, if you want to follow along. Romans 4, 1 to fall, 1 and following. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? In other words, Abraham is used as the example again. What was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, born of the same lineage. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, credited to him as righteousness. He goes on to say this, this, this righteousness was not earned by him even. It says in verse 4 here in Romans, to the one who works, to the person who works, wages are counted to that person as due that person because of their work. But to someone who does not work, who is justified before God, their justification comes to them as a gift. As a free gift. And that's a crucial, crucial point before we get to the covenant. Because what we'll see in how God makes the covenant known to Abraham is that it was given to him as a free gift. Jump back to Genesis, where we pick up about how the covenant is revealed in this way, in terms that make it clear, make it clear that this is a free gift to Abraham. It starts in verse 7, where we pick up here. This is God talking to Abraham, and he continues to make the point that, that, that God initiates this. He says, he says to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you, gift you this land to possess. That sounds like Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where it says, I will show you the land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In other words, this is all going to be of God from start to finish. And he continues to make that point here in verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur to give you this land to possess. But he said, now this is not so much Abram being a a doubter, but he's just saying, Lord, just show me how this is going to work. Give me a sign, verse 8. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? When will I know? This is a request for confirmation and not so much an expression of doubt. So he says, verse 9, okay, let's make this practical in a way that you cannot miss. He said to Abraham, verse 9, to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, that is Abram, brought him all of these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. Uh, Other versions of Scripture, NIV, for example, says... um, It says, he cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite one another. So there is space between each half of the animal. 
And it says, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. In other words, Abram is totally passive here. This is significant. Abram is totally passive in this process as God is doing this. God's obviously in control. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. Know for sure. He's trying to make this practical for him to encourage him. And he says, know for sure, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. It's a prediction of of the Egyptian bondage and the exodus uh, later, 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In other words, this is going to pay off, Abraham. This is going to pay off. It will be worth the wait. Verse 15, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, buried in a good old age. You're not going to see all the fruits of this, but your offspring will. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, So verse 17 here. Uh, to sort of formalize God's promise with, with Abram uh, zonked out, with Abram passively watching all of this happening. God in control, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Smoke and fire symbolizing the presence of God. Many other places in Scripture, the same kind of pictures symbolize the presence of God. And so it's the presence of God going through these pieces of animal. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant. It's the first time we see this word in Scripture. And that word made there is is literally cut. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant. What this, what this means, and this is so cool about what's going on here, this, this scene where we have got the presence of God walking through these pieces of animal is like God is saying, if I don't hold up to my end of the bargain, may I be cut to pieces like this. In fact, there is evidence of making that kind of an oath outside the scriptures. They would, they would bring down a curse upon themselves as a way of making a promise to someone. So in other words, God takes so seriously his covenant to Abraham and to us that he says, if, if I don't keep up with my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. The God of the universe. Sets up the terms of the covenant in ways that make abundantly clear that it never, ever depended on us. The very beginning of the covenant is meant to intentionally make clear that there is no possible way to be justified other than by faith in what God does on our behalf. So faith in God 
must first be faith in his work to justify us. And the terms of that covenant are continued to be spelled out throughout Genesis and the rest of Scripture. The covenant is tested in uh, chapter 16 here with the, the scene of Sarah and, and, and Hagar. And Hagar and, and, and Abraham, he listens to the suggestion of his wife to, to do something that he probably should not have, which demonstrates that he's not waiting patiently for, for God's work to continue to happen. It, it, it demonstrates that like us, Abraham struggles with waiting patiently for what God is doing. How many times have we been that way in our lives? How often do we not want to wait for God to demonstrate what he has to tell us or to teach us? And I think, I think it works like this. Uh, our lives are sort of like uh, flying in an airplane. Our lives are sort of like flying in an airplane. When you're cruising at 35,000 feet, you have no worries. Everything's fine. Uh, life's a party. Uh, you're not really thinking about God. That, that's how it works at 35,000 feet for most of our lives. There's no sense of need for Him. But all of a sudden, one of the engines in the plane sputters, and then, and then the other goes out, and, the, and then the plane starts doing this. And when the plane starts doing this, Suddenly, everyone on the plane is very open to God. Suddenly, all of a sudden, openness to the leading of God kind of makes sense and, and feels right as the plane descends. And when the fuselage of that plane begins to scrape the tops of the trees, everybody's making commitments to Jesus. Okay? That's when, that's when you're learning that's when everything is crystal clear. The valleys of life are the places where it feels like I, I really, really need to be open to God's voice. But what happens in our lives is the pilot pulls up and we ascend again. And we ascend to 35,000 feet and everything's fine like it was. No worries. And you know what God says when we get back up to 35,000 feet? What what he says to us when we get there is, remember, remember what I taught you down here? Do you remember what I taught you and what you were open to learn when you were down here? Don't forget it when you're up here. Don't forget it when you're up here. In fact, he says, the reason I allow this plane to scrape the trees is because the lessons you're open to learning while you're down here, I couldn't teach you when you were up here. How often are our lives examples of that down and up motion? We, we, we want Jesus to take us by the hand and bring us over the valleys. That's really what we want. We want him to take us and to bring us over the valleys of our lives. And the reality about a relationship with God is that he takes us through valleys, but the whole time we're holding his hand, 
We have the option of letting go. We have the option of saying, you know what, I don't want to be open to your work in my life, God. We have that. Jesus doesn't let go. The question is whether or not we are going to continue to hold on to him so he can teach us, so that we can grow, so that we can continue to become the people he's called us to be. Abram struggled with those valleys. We can see the ups and downs of relationship with God from Genesis before now, even to now, and it continues. But but even in those valleys, those hard parts, the, the plains scraping the tops of the trees, it's, it's, the, it's the truth that God justifies us. It's the truth that God initiated this. It's the truth that God puts us here for His purposes and His glory and His reasons that can continue to be for us encouragement when the fuselage is hitting the tops of trees, when we're in the valleys, when things are hard. The great thing about the truth of following Jesus is it's worth the wait. Let's pray.